Welcome to the Good Life EDU podcast presented by the Nebraska ESU Coordinating Council. I'm your host, Andrew Easton. Thanks for joining us as we discuss the latest in digital learning across Nebraska and around the country. All right, I'd like to welcome everybody back for another episode of the Good Life EDU podcast. And I am just so excited today to have Amy Morin uh, join us for today's conversation. Uh, We're going to talk a little bit about her most recent book, 13 Things Strong Kids Do. And really, this is a conversation that came from Amy joining us from our recent Monday Motivation live show. Just really appreciated having her on and, and learning from her about this text and felt like there was really an opportunity to extend that conversation in the podcast and hopefully inform educators that listen into this uh, show on a regular basis uh, a little bit more about some of the things that, that Amy's promoting because I do think it has its application in education. Uh, and so really grateful to Amy for taking the time to share out today. So Amy, welcome to the pod. Thank you so much for having me, Andrew. Yeah, I really appreciate it. And uh, for those that maybe aren't familiar with you and, and your backstory, can you give us a little bit of an introduction? Sure. So I'm a therapist by trade and was working as a therapist thinking, okay, I'm going to teach everybody in my therapy office, all this stuff I learned in in college. Uh, But it was really about a year into my journey as a therapist that uh, my mom passed away and I suddenly became interested in mental strength on a whole new level. It wasn't just about teaching other people, but I thought, how do I apply this to my own life? How do you go through tough times and come out on the other side feeling like you're still okay? And so I started studying the people in my therapy office with this new interest because I wanted to know, I'd see some people who would come in and they, they'd go through tough times and they felt stuck, but I'd see other people who came in and they felt like they somehow grew from the tough times in their lives. So I thought, what's the difference between these two people? And one of the things I learned pretty early on was that people who tended to still come out of tough times hopeful and they had new skills and they grew from it. It was more about what they didn't do rather than what they did do. So I started studying what are the bad habits that keep these other people stuck? And about, it was actually three years to the day that my mother died. My 26 year old husband died of a heart attack. And obviously at 26, you're not supposed to have a heart attack. And I thought for sure, I wasn't supposed to be a widow at 26, but uh, that's what the hand that life dealt me. And at least by then I knew, all right, when you go through tough times, don't do these certain things. And so I really paid attention to my daily habits and figuring out how do you go through grief. And even though I was a therapist and I kind of knew these things, knowing it and doing it are two very different things, but I worked as hard as I could on myself and figuring out how do you go through the pain rather than around it. And it took a long time to feel better, but a few years later, life was starting to look good again. I had a new job, a new house, I got remarried. And my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer right around the same time. And I thought, this isn't fair. I shouldn't have to lose somebody else. I don't want to grieve again. My heart's broken still, but it wasn't like I had a choice. And so on one of my darkest days, I sat down and I wrote a list of what mentally strong people don't do. And it was really just a letter to myself of if I don't do these certain things, I'll be okay in life. But I found it really helpful. And so I thought if it helps me, maybe it could help someone else. So I published it on the internet thinking five or six people would read it, but 50 million people read that article. And one of the people who read it was a literary agent who called and said, you should write a book. And I had no plans of writing a book. I didn't even know what a literary agent was, but within a month we had a book deal with the biggest publisher in the world. And that was in 2013 that I wrote the list. 2014, my first book came out and here we are in 2021 and book number four has just hit the shelves. So that one article certainly changed the course of my life. And now I get to 
go around and tell people about mental strength and I get to write books and I get to be the editor in chief of Very Well Mind, which happens to be the biggest mental health website in the world. And I still talk about a lot of the same things I talked about in my therapy office on a one-on-one -on -one basis. I just get to do it on a much bigger scale these days. Well, and thanks for bringing all that experience and expertise to our podcast too, and being able to share that out. And, you know, I can appreciate, you know, as you share your backstory there, being vulnerable enough to go through kind of those hardships that you navigated. And I'm not always sure that that's something that's comfortable for people to do um, ever for that matter, <laughs> like even at no matter how many times you tell it. And do you feel, because I don't know, I'll share it in my own background, I had one year, it was really tough. I went through an 11 month long divorce uh, and my dad passed away in the middle of that year. And I did find that by just being really open and honest about my story was helpful to navigating that and coming out of it, maybe with a little bit more of a growth mindset. So would you say the same? Yeah, you know, funny you say that. So at first when the article came out that listed the 13 things mentally strong people don't do, it was literally just the list. It gave no context to why I wrote it or who I was or anything like that. And so once people learned, oh, it was a therapist who wrote this list as it was going viral, I was getting calls from media all around the world, Finland, MTV in Finland and CNN in Mexico. And they're all like, this is great. You mastered this list. And nobody knew the backstory. And at first I thought, well, I'm a therapist. I don't talk about my problems. I listen to people's problems. And so I didn't tell the story. I, there's interviews of me on Fox News or Forbes uh, magazine saying like, yeah, I'm a therapist. I just knew these things. I didn't want to tell anybody. Like, actually, I struggle with all 13 things. And here's what's happened in my life. So it really wasn't until the book came out. But certainly opening up and telling people, yeah, you know, I'm human too. And here are some of the things I'm going through. It's just made it all, all so much easier to talk about over time. And then, and then I feel like people are more comfortable to say, here's what I went through as well. And here's my struggles. Because the truth is, we're all human. We all go through really tough times in life. We all have a bad, a bad year, a bad, a bad decade. Life is tough sometimes. And, and for some reason, you know, we're really hesitant to talk about it. And even though here I am talking about mental strength, it's like, there's still something ingrained in the back of my head sometimes that will say like, don't talk about those things that you go through that are tough because you'll look weak, even though that's completely against my message. And that's what I talk about is, yeah, it takes a lot more strength sometimes to say, hey, I'm struggling or I went through this than it does to cover it up and pretend like you're fine all the time. Yeah, And I think sharing that story adds not only an authenticity to your message, but as you said, it makes it hopefully cathartic for you a little bit, but, but make what you have to share accessible to other people because they can relate to those hardships. And, and so I, I want to say that in knowing more about your story, that certainly has resonated with me. So thanks for being vulnerable in that way and sharing that out. Uh, and I would ask then, I guess, so this has obviously led to a series of books and the one that we're going to focus on in today's conversation will be 13 Things Strong Kids Do. Can you share a little bit like, so the progression went from here's the things not to do as an uh, adult for your own mental wellness. And here's the things maybe to kind of consider. I know there's a parenting book as well. Uh, and so why uh, kids now? Well, so when I wrote my first book, it was the 13 things mainly strong people don't do. And the biggest question I kept getting from readers or the most common comments were like, how do I teach this to kids? Or if only I'd learned this when I was younger, life could have been different. So I thought it just made sense to then come out with a parenting book and say, okay, here's how you can be a mental strength coach for your kids. And then I wrote a book specifically for women because I had so many women saying things like, well, what does it look like to be a strong woman? We talk so much about mental toughness in terms of Navy SEALs and elite athletes who just 
happen to be men most of the time. So I wrote the women's book, but then I still just kept getting questions about, okay, I need something for my kids. And so I thought, well, let's, let's go ahead and do that. And maybe if we make a book for kids right now and teach them what to do, they won't grow up to develop all these unhealthy habits that us adults do that I talk about in my other books. And I was having this conversation with my 10 year old niece and she said, yeah, we get told what not to do all the time. We just need to know now what, what do we do instead? And I thought, yeah, that just reinforces the idea of let's write a book about what to do and, and give kids a guide of, all right, when I'm struggling with this problem, here's some strategies I can use. Or when I feel like this, what's going to help me? And to just really give them a clear roadmap and some exercises and some tools so that they feel like they're equipped to deal with whatever challenges life happens to throw their way. Gosh, that so resonates with my heart as an educator, right? <laughs> like the word, if we can do a better job of creating brighter future by instilling these values in our kids, we know that that leads to then them growing up to being adults that will have those same skills, knowledge base, et cetera. And uh, I want to tease out of what you just shared there, this idea that today as adults, that wasn't necessarily our upbringing, but was to have these types of strategies and have these conversations with parents and, and have those at school potentially um, certainly case by case, it might've happened, but maybe not as uh, openly as those conversations are being had now. So I know it's tough sometimes to speak broadly, like comparing one generation to the next, but do you feel like that this message is something that it would have been kind of timeless or that this particular generation today needs this message all the more? Well, I, I certainly wish, this is the book I wish I would have had as a kid. We didn't really talk about feelings. It didn't really matter, you know, if you were upset about something. And I think the way that parenting has really evolved over the years, you look at the, the father knows best era and kids were to be seen and not heard. And we realized that kind of stifled their development. And over the years, the pendulum shifted, but I think it often shifts too far in the other direction to the point where parents now feel really responsible for their kids' feelings, or they feel like if their kids aren't happy all the time or their kids aren't succeeding academically, then somehow it's a character flaw of our own. And we go to great lengths to sort of prop our kids up and, and make them look good. And we want to make sure that they look good on social media and that our kids are happy, but we're not giving them necessarily the skills and tools that they need. And it's tough to know, how do you, how do you let your kids fail sometimes? How do you let your kids make mistakes? How do you teach them? How do you calm yourself down? How do you cheer yourself up? Or when your child comes to you and says, I have this recital on Thursday and it's not going to go well. Everybody's going to laugh at me. We want to be really quick to dive in and say, oh no, honey, it's going to go great. But we don't teach them how to do that for themselves. And I really wanted this book to be able to teach parents and teach adults to know how do we teach kids those skills so that when we're not right there doing it for them, that they can figure out, all right, when I'm predicting something awful is going to happen, how do I change my own mindset? And if I don't have somebody right there to tell me what to think instead, and when it comes to emotions, I mean, our emotions affect everything we do. And so no matter how smart your kid is, if they can't control their temper, they're probably not going to be that successful in life. And there's a study that stood out to me too, when they looked at college kids and they asked them, how prepared were you for college? 90% of them say, academically, I was prepared. Yet the vast majority of them say, but I don't have the emotional skills I need to, to get through this. And that's why one of the reasons why we see college dropout rates so high. Kids are getting out of high school and then for life after high school, they're like, you know, I don't know how to deal with loneliness. I don't know what to do when I'm bored. I don't know what to do when I'm sad. Nobody's really taught me these skills. So I feel like this is the missing piece. If we can teach kids how to manage their emotions, how to deal with negative thoughts, how to get along with other people better, 
how to take some kind of positive action, then it doesn't matter. I mean, they don't need to go to college anyway, they, but they'll be successful in life and they'll feel better and they'll go on to reach their greatest potential. Oh, I love all of that. And I couldn't agree more, particularly at that collegiate level and the struggles that come with that. And I think the educators are well aware of some of those places. I think we do this as teachers too, that sometimes we, with big hearts that care about kiddos, we, we want to see them be successful and we put up too much scaffolding to try to help them through hard times to make it so simple uh, that they shouldn't struggle with it. And that struggle actually is the opportunity for growth that uh, that sometimes we rob them of, I think, in those instances. And so this is, this is a great thing. I'm going to continue to frame this as, a, as an educator. And I love uh, reading through the book and getting a chance to kind of see it through that lens. So if you would, because there's 13 things, right, that we're talking about strong kids do. Could you give us a preview of like a couple of those? What's at the forefront of your thoughts, maybe, if we could go through two or three? Uh, so one of them would be that strong kids take calculated risks. And risk is a funny thing when you look at kids. You have some kids that will do a stunt on their bike without thinking twice. And yet that same kid might not be willing to present their science fair project in front of the class. And we don't really ever teach them the difference. or we don't teach them how do you calculate risk? How do you know when it's a good idea to do something? And kids, now adults do this too, we tend to think that our level of fear is equal to the level of risk. So if getting up in front of the class to present my science fair project feels scary, it must be really risky, so I shouldn't do it. But yet, taking a huge stunt on my bike, and even though I might break my arm, that doesn't feel scary, so I'm gonna go do that anyway. And it's so important for us to talk to kids about this, that sometimes our anxiety alarm bells are wrong, that just because our anxiety alarm bells ring when we have to give that presentation in front of the class doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't do it. It means, all right, your anxiety alarm bells may be a little faulty. All of us have faulty alarm bells. And that that's okay, and that, that you can face that fear. And, and that sometimes we don't have enough anxiety and your friend dares you to do something that's maybe a bad idea. Your anxiety alarm bell should ring and you should say, okay, this is a bad idea and not do it. But if we just talked more about that with kids so that they understood, all right, when my heart starts beating fast, it doesn't mean I shouldn't do something. Maybe it's just a, a moment to step back and think, all right, is this a good idea or not? And, and when we teach them that, then they just become so much better at knowing how do you face certain fears? How do you take action when you need to? And how do you ignore some of that anxiety? How do you face it head on? And then when do you listen to it? Because it's, it's being wise and it's telling you don't do this thing because you might get hurt. That uh, makes me think a little bit about, well, first off, the quote of like, you need to go out on a limb because that's where the fruit is. I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to credit the person because I don't have it up to forefront of my thoughts, but I love that idea. And as a like classroom practitioner, one thing that I always appreciated when it came to, let's say, students developing a product, um, some sort of project or, or giving a presentation, uh, building risk into the rubric and actually giving language in those situations to say, okay, if you could do anything for this project and you chose to do a Google slide deck, which is the safest play you could possibly come up with <laughs> as a way to demonstrate your learning, that's great. But innovation often requires you to be a little bit more daring. And so, yeah, explain to me how this is going to like get you to grow and how, kind of having those conversations and building that in with a slight point value, I think is a really healthy thing to try to do to bring that language into the intentional efforts in an academic setting. I think so too. I think that would be so important. And for kids to realize that, all right, getting up in front of the class and talking and presenting this is scary, but yet 
that could be part of what I get graded on is my willingness to get out there and face my fears. And I was that kid that I, you know, fake sick if I had a presentation, that sort of a thing, because I hated it to no end. And so to the point that my teachers often read my papers for me. And so even in high school, I had an English teacher that would read my paper for me because she knew I was really shy. So I just learned if I let other people talk for me, then that's great. I don't have to do it myself. And had I been graded on that, that would have given me some motivation to say, all right, I can I can read my own paper in front of the class for two minutes. It's not that big of a deal. But the more I avoided it, the harder it became. Yeah. And I, and I love thinking, too, that that gives some flexibility to tailor it to the individual, because what might be a risk for you might not be a risk for me. And so we might need to, you know, alter that accordingly and, and to identify that as a, as you say, they're like a calculated risk, like a, what's a manageable one. I'm, I'm going to transition to another one of uh, the chapters, actually, and pair that with focusing on things that they can control. So I know that's also one of these 13 things. And so how do you kind of pair those two? You, you talked about it a little bit uh, before, but I'd be curious to hear you talk more about where the line is between those two, because you're, you're right in both cases. And kids, you know, adults struggle with this one too, but for kids especially to know, all right, what can I control? Well, I can't control whether the teacher makes the test really hard, but I can control how much I study for it, or I can't control how many pages of homework I have, but I can control how much time I spend on them. Just for kids to know, all right, I'm not in control of how other people feel. Maybe your friend's mad at you, and but maybe that doesn't mean you did anything wrong. Or maybe it's going to rain on Saturday and you can't go do that thing. Well, you don't need to waste time worrying about the weather on Saturday. Instead, what could you do? Come up with a plan of what happens if it's going to rain. And I think when we just help kids focus on that and they put their energy in the right place, they feel better. We all want to know that we're taking some kind of productive action in life, but yet when we waste all this time worrying about what other people think, what other people are going to do, what's going to happen next week, how other people are going to behave, it just wastes so much energy. And if kids can learn this at a young age, okay, my job is to focus on me. My job is to focus on what I can do, what I have control over. Then uh, they'll be so much, they'll just feel so much better. They'll uh, be much more productive and they'll get a lot more done in life and feel good about what they're able to accomplish. And I, I love that in that education setting too. You could even talk about, you know, what can you control in the 30 minutes that you're in here and your it's your attitude. It's how much you check your phone. It's you know, whether you talk with your peers or not. And, and are you going to actually put in the time to alleviate some of that anxiety you might eventually have if you don't take care of business, I guess, in this particular moment, right? Is that kind of the... Definitely, because I know kids will spend 25 minutes complaining about how much homework they have when if they just sat down and did it for 30 minutes, they could have it done. And for them to realize that, all right, this is your choice. If you choose to do this, then here are the consequences. But you also have other choices you can make. And kids often feel trapped, like there's nothing I can do about this. There, I have no power. I have no control. And, you know, as adults, we can teach them things like, do you want water with your dinner or do you want ice water well we just gave them a choice either way i don't care drink water with or without ice but when we give them a little bit of control over small things and help them to know okay you can make some decisions in life but then to know other things are out of their control you can't control what the teacher's teaching about or what the next subject is or anything like that and that's okay but here's the things you do have control over they just feel so much better and then they do a lot better too yeah, because there's an agency in that. There's an engagement, right? I, if I just passively take the next task on that's on the to-do list versus 
having to actively do that metacognitive thing of being invested in the process of, well, I have this road or this road or this option or this option to pursue. Loving this. All right. What's another chapter that you would uh, like to maybe speak to? Uh, that strong kids persist. So we did a study on this to figure out which which of the 13 things kids struggle with the most, and especially during the pandemic. And parents identified this one is the toughest, that their kids are giving up really easily and they're giving up too soon. So, and of course, this is a really important one. We don't want kids to say, well, I took two violin lessons and it was hard, so I quit. Or I was gonna play soccer, but after practice, I realized I was the worst kid on the team, so I'm not gonna play anymore. And it goes back to that growth mindset. We want kids to know if you practice more, if you put in the hard work that you can grow and that you can learn. And one of my favorite exercises from the book, it's a really simple one, but quite effective, is to write yourself a kind letter. So you have your child write themselves a letter that might, maybe it's just five sentences long. It says, ah, I know you go through tough times sometimes, but you can do this and you're a good kid and whatever else they have for, for kind words to themselves. And then when they're struggling, when they're tempted to give up, have them pull out that letter and read it to themselves. And the reason this is so powerful is because it's in their own words. As adults, we wanna, we wanna do that for kids. Like, no, you can do this, but we're not always gonna be right there to cheer them on. So we wanna teach them how do they cheer themselves on. And when they have that letter of, oh, okay, I'm gonna take this out, I'm gonna read it. And it just reminds them, okay, you can do this. Even though right now you feel really bad and when you feel bad, and you're frustrated, your brain's trying to tell you 101 reasons why you shouldn't keep going, but here's this letter that tells you why you should. And that can just give them that extra push. And it just reminds them that they have the skills and power to talk themselves into something healthy rather than always needing somebody else to prod them and push them along. That so resonates with me as a parent. Uh, I actually, even in the last 10 days, my daughter started track and, and she's working on being a distance runner. She's 10. So I didn't need to like frame it with that. She ran a half mile and then they did six 400s, which I feel like was a lot for a 10 year old. Right. And in the midst of that practice, she started bawling and she came over to talk to me and she's like, I'm never doing this again. I hate this sport. I quit. And at the end of it, we did have a really just genuine moment. And a part of your book made me think about this story, actually, because it uh, when you recommended catchphrases. So that's kind of like the letter, but maybe just more in a motto. Right. I was like, I was like, Amor, you are stronger than you think you are. And she that like really just stuck with her in the next night of practice. They had like a four mile practice uh, and she went through all of it without any of the sniffles or bad attitude. And, and she said that to me afterwards. She goes, I know I'm strong. Like I did this yesterday and I can do this uh, moving forward. And it's funny how just kind of getting back to those uh, positive words of reinforcement, which weaves into another one of the chapters here, holding to that is so helpful, I think, for kids. I love that example for kids to know. And that's a real life teachable moment to say, okay, when you're running, your brain is going to tell you, you have to quit. Your body's too tired. You can't do this, but your brain lies to you sometimes. And for kids to know that, that they don't have to believe everything they think. And then if they have a little motto that says, you've got this, just keep going, whatever it is that they repeat to themselves helps to round out those negative thoughts and remind them, all right, my brain's trying to trick me right now, but I got a better trick that works. And here it is. And just by repeating that, it can help them feel better and then they can do better. And that's it. It doesn't mean that the repeats were any less miserable. And and life's like that. You know, you have times where it's just, it is hard. And, yep. and uh, but your resiliency uh, and your ability to persist as you're sharing here is just so, so pivotal. Um, I think we got time for one more. Let's talk about another chapter. What's uh, maybe a fourth one we could get to here? Uh, so if I had to pick one more, I'd say, that they stop feeling sorry for themselves. 
And this is one that I, I get some pushback from because parents and educators will say, no, no, that's okay. Kids need to know they need to express their feelings. But when they say that, they're often confusing the difference between being sad and feeling sorry for yourself. And there is a big difference between that. It's healthy for kids to be sad. We need to let them be sad and let them figure out how do you cheer yourself up? How do you just sit with those sad feelings sometimes? But on the other hand, when they feel sorry for themselves, this is when they start to think, oh, my problems are too big. There's nothing I can do about this. And they sort of become helpless and hopeless. These are the kids that when they forget their homework, they just think, oh, I've dug myself in a hole. There's nothing I can do about it. And they start avoiding all of their homework for the rest of the week because they forgot it for one day. Or that when they start to get a little behind in class, they just avoid asking any questions because they think I'm just too stupid to learn. We want to teach them to know when you have a problem that you can problem solve it. And in the book, we go through some specific strategies of how do you solve problems? How do you take positive action? But I think one of the most important things we can do for kids is just help them figure out how are you feeling? And so a kid who can say, I feel sad, it actually takes a lot of the sting out of that emotion, just putting a label to it. There's science behind it. And then the best question we can ask them, is that a friend or an enemy right now? That Because we talk so much about feelings as being either positive or negative. Happiness is positive and anger is negative. That's not true. Any feeling can be helpful or hurtful at any moment. And so being angry, yeah, sometimes it's a bad idea because maybe it made you rip up that paper that you were frustrated about and then you had to start over. But on the other hand, maybe when you were angry because that kid was getting made fun of on the bus, you stood up for him and you found a little courage you didn't think you had. So maybe it's helpful sometimes. And for us to then teach kids, all right, how do you know when, you're, when your emotion is helpful and, and it's a friend? And how do you know when it's harmful and it's an enemy? And then to empower them to say, here's how you can manage your emotions. When they're not helpful, here's some skills that can calm you down or here's some strategies that can cheer you up. And then they just feel like, oh, uh, I don't just have to sit here passively and, and allow myself to feel whatever it is I feel, or I don't have to blame other people for making me mad or anything like that. I have some power over my life. And that can just make a huge difference in how they grow up and how they see themselves in the world when they're turning into an adult. And reading the book, that whole language of the an emotion being a friend and an emotion being an enemy really resonated with me too, as a parent, educator, uh, and something that I'll be sure to teach my kids moving forward because I, I like the how simple that is and accessible that is for kids. You know, in your comments there, you reference strategies and I love the construction of this book with the think big, feel good, act brave, uh, and that thread that kind of goes through where there's everything from strategies to reflection questions. Uh, can you speak to kind of the construction of the book for people that are interested in picking this up to kind of give us the practical elements of it? that they might be able to then start to deconstruct really and then integrate into their classroom. Yeah, so when we talk about mental strength, there's three parts to it, the way you think, the way you feel and the actions that you take. And so I wanted to take all of the 13 things and then break it down into how do you change your thinking? So when you are feeling sorry for yourself or when you are tempted to give up and your brain's telling you not to go forward, how do you change that thinking? So that's the think big part. We give a really specific exercise of here's what you can do. And then about feel good. Well, we know that we do better when we feel better. So how do you feel good? I wanted to give every chapter, have a specific exercise about how do you change your emotional state, whether it's you have a mood booster that cheers you up or a strategy that calms you down so that you can be in the best frame possible so that you can take some wise action. And then the action part is about acting brave. All right, I don't feel like doing this, but how do I do it anyway? And really just concrete, simple things of how do you take action, uh, even when you don't feel like it or when you're hesitating or when you're not sure what to do, 
how do you do something? And so I wanted every chapter to have those exercises. And then I wanted kids to know that there's going to be some exercises you like, some you don't, some that work better. That's okay. It's more like a toolbox. And we all have certain tools that we would reach for if we had a physical toolbox. Maybe you reach for the hammer more often than you do the screwdriver, whatever it is. But for kids to know that they now have a toolbox and I know they're not going to remember all of these exercises, uh, but they're going to have some that will really stick with them and some that work better for them. And to know that, all right, when you're having a bad day or maybe down the road six weeks from now, you can still reference back in the book and look at those exercises and say, all right, now I'm dealing with this friend issue. What could I do about it? There should be a whole bunch of exercises that can help you in a good place to start. Or maybe you're struggling with something at school and you don't know what to do about it. If you go back and reference the book and pick one of the exercises, I guarantee that they'll find something that works for them. I love that whole hammer screwdriver analogy there. It reminds me of a quote that I came, and I'm going to not cite this properly either, like the previous one, but uh, that if the only tool you have is a hammer, you'll see every problem as a nail. And I like that idea of trying to diversify the strategies you have at your disposal as tools to be able to then apply those in a variety of contexts. And, you know, I, the book does a great job of this. And I would just say uh, from an educator's lens, uh, with the 13 different chapters and topics, you could certainly look at a semester and say, okay, I want to build out some SEL lessons, right? Like, let's say I, I really want to bring this type of language and thinking and conversation into my classroom. And so how might I do that on a weekly basis with some consistency, but not at time is always the big factor for educators. We don't have enough time to get all the great things we'd like to get done accomplished. Uh, but as you shared there, I think you could pick a chapter a week. I think you could start with think big on Monday and feel good on Tuesday or Wednesday and act brave on Thursday or Friday and in three small bite sized but, but a progression, uh, get in a rhythm of doing that over a semester and the reflection questions and the strategies that are, that are mentioned, uh, I just think are applicable for a nice little like five minute opening, um, whether you're a secondary teacher who only sees your students for an hour a day or an elementary teacher who might have the opportunity to do that as part of your uh, morning warm-up. So I really love this book in that context, if uh, teachers are interested in bringing some of that language into their classroom. I think so too. I'm glad you said that because when we all have the same language, when a teacher can say to a kid, is that a blue thought or a true thought? And the kid knows what it means and you know what it means. And then, you know, you can problem solve together too. So when you say, all right, here, we have this issue, here are the steps to problem solving. Let's work on this together. So many real time moments where you could work on this stuff. And I would think of it as an investment. Maybe it takes five minutes to work on this, but I guarantee that it will save you some trouble on the discipline end. And that when kids feel more confident, they'll feel better. You won't have to deal with a lot of the friendship drama and things like that. If you start teaching them this now and you start using that same common language to be able to say, okay, how do we, how do we tackle this? Or what's a tool we could use right now? And the kids will feel better. And I guarantee that they'll do better. Uh, yeah, it's a culture builder. And I think on top of that, too, you know, you talk about when you're able to then use that language with the students. It's fun when students start to use that with their peers, right? And someone might exactly. jokingly, is that a true thought or a blue thought? But that shows that that has resonated with them to a degree that it's now part of how they start to process the world around them and can share that with their peers, which gets back to the agency that you were talking about, just shows that they have that capacity to process that in a healthy way. Yes, I think so as well. And there's, again, so many real life moments when a kid says, oh, I can never figure out math. 
and somebody can say that's a blue thought and uh, when i used to work in the schools we i would do this as well and after a while we noticed exactly what you would say is kids would call each other out and and say let's let's work on this or how do we you'd find the kids using the steps to problem solving to do some sort of friend issue at recess and you think this is amazing that they're finding real problems in life to apply these strategies to and and they're working and they're finding that it works enough that they're then doing it on their on their own time and encouraging one another to use them too and i love that our conversation today has captured the potential that i believe this book has in education that's why i wanted to have this conversation so that we could inform our audience uh, that this resource is out there uh, we have added it to the sora app that our esu network has available and so if people wanted to you know access it there they could certainly do that um I'd ask, and we'll kind of get to maybe a closing message here in just a second, but if educators are interested in continuing to kind of follow your work and engage in whatever, like you have some online resources as well, right? That go with the book. I do. So my website's the best place to find information, which is Amy Morin, LCSW is in licensed clinical social worker.com. But I also host the very well mind podcast where we talk about mental strength and a lot of the exercises from the kids book I talk about in an adult friendly way too for the grownups to learn. So every week I interview somebody on Mondays and then on Fridays I offer a mental strength exercise. So the Very Well Mind podcast is a great place to tune into to learn more about mental strength. Yeah. And as uh, someone who loves podcasts, obviously, as I host one, <laughs> but uh, I've had a chance to listen to a couple of those and they are terrific. So I would certainly point people to your website and encourage them to listen to those as well, because it's helpful for us as adults to be engaged in this kind of thinking and ongoing support. So uh, Amy, I'm going to ask as we close here to see if you might have just kind of a parting message that you would like to share out, uh, just really give you a little space to, to kind of wrap up our conversation. I guess the biggest thing I'd say is people often say, well, kids are resilient. They bounce back. Well, the truth is they can, but we need to give them the skills and the tools to do that, not just expect that they'll go through hard times and then somehow emerge stronger. Uh, but they're all capable of learning. How do you how do you cope with this? How do you deal with this? How do you manage your thoughts around this subject? So whether we're talking about the pandemic or you have a kid that failed or a kid that is struggling with something specific or they're going through uh, something at home, we want them to know that they can get through it, but we need to make sure that we're coaching them, guiding them and giving them the things that they need so that they, they can grow stronger because of it. Well, and thank you so much for creating a text that helps better equip us with the capacity to be that support and to facilitate those conversations with our own kids or our students. Uh, and so I really appreciate your time today for joining us on the pod. It's been really fun. And I would encourage everybody to check out 13 Things Strong Kids Do. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Yeah, thanks.